Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we're going to discuss the paper, Long-Term Effect of Selective Dorsal Rhizotomy on Gross Motor Function in Ambulant Children with Spastic Bilateral Cerebral Palsy, compared with reference centiles, by Aline Dolster and colleagues, which is going to be in the July 2013 issue of the journal. It will be discussed by Professor Vermeulen, pediatric neurologist in the Department of Pediatric Neurology, VU University Medical Center, Amsterdam, the Netherlands, who is one of the authors, and Professor Paul Steinbock, pediatric neurosurgeon at BC Children's Hospital, University of British Columbia, Canada, who's also written a commentary on the article. Please can we start with you, Professor Vermeulen, to outline the paper and its background. First, I would like to start with the introduction with the fact that I did this. Uh, I'm representing a group of authors, and that is a collaboration between different departments the Department of Pediatric Neurology, Pediatric Rehabilitation, and Neurosurgery. Because I think this kind of work can only be done in a group. And what we have done is that we do um, selective dorsal rhizotomy already for a couple of years. And what we uh, published a couple of years ago is that there are no functional results about the selective rhizotomy in the long term. And therefore, we analyze our uh, prospective cohort in in that comprised uh, in total 29 children, with most children in uh, GMSGS class 3, 18, and then 4 in uh, class 2 and 7 in class 1. And we looked at 5 and at uh, 10 years, uh, and then we used the GMFCS 66 scores. And, of course, uh, children will, uh, the the, the levels will increase, and therefore we uh, used a percentile uh, method. And we defined that children uh, improved after selective tours rhizotomy when they had to change more than centiles, and otherwise that they deteriorated when there was a decrease of more than 20 centiles. And what we found is that uh, 10 out of 28 children showed an improvement, and 10 years, that was after 5 years, and after 10 years, 6 out of the 20 children had improved, and there were no children that deteriorated. And we saw a couple of additional uh, operations that were needed, spinal operations, hip fixation, and also uh, foot operations. And well, also the largest part were the botulinum toxin treatments that were necessary in the follow-up of these children. So in conclusion, we showed in, the, in our cohort, which is a small one single-center cohort with a very restrictive selection of walking children, that we saw improvement in about one-third of the patients, and now none of the patients deteriorated. However, we have to admit that we need additional treatments. We were not able to, to avoid the additional operations with the selected dorsal rhizotomy. So that is in short our study. Um, I think that the study that has been reported by the group in Amsterdam is a major contribution to our literature. What they have done, which is quite different from what others have done, is first of all, to determine whether individual patients improved, became worse, or were stable after this rhizotomy procedure. I think most people in the past, including our group, have reported the aggregate 
effect of the operation, as has also been reported in this study as part of the report, in that we would choose an outcome measure, let us say the GMFM 66 or GMFM 88 in the past, and we would look at what the mean change in GMFM has been from preoperatively to a period of time postoperatively, and decide whether that was a statistically significant change. Well, that is interesting, but it's really not as important to the patient and to the parents as the way in which Dr. Vermeulen and his group have presented the data. Because I think parents of children would like to know how probable is it that my child will improve after this operation using whatever outcome measure you choose to look at. And obviously, if we choose an outcome measure that's simply a measure of spasticity, we could indicate perhaps that 90% to close to 100% will improve. If you use an outcome measure as you've done here, which is a GMFM 66, then most of those patients also will improve, but there's a confounder. And the confounder that's been addressed quite nicely in this paper is that everyone, if you start off at three, four, five, six years, which is the population that is being dealt with here, will have some improvement in the GMFM 66 scores as they age. And so uh, Hannah and the group in McMaster in Canada have presented GMFM 66 curves for each level of the GMFM, GMFCS scores to indicate the type of improvement one can expect in the GMFM 66 scores with age. And what the group in Amsterdam have done was to say, okay, we know that the patients are going to improve the natural history without any intervention is some improvement of GMFM 66 scores. Why don't we look at these scores as reference percentiles, reference curves, and we will say that if the patient has improved more than 20% over the expected, we consider them to have improved more than the natural history. And if they deteriorate more than 20%, we will say that they worsened more than the natural history. And I think this has been an excellent way to look at things. And with this technique, they've showed that about 30% of the patients overall improved more than would have been expected based on the reference curves. It is interesting that we do an operation, a rhizotomy procedure, and look at motor function and we continue to do this operation even though we showed, as they have shown here, that only about 30% of the patients improve. And for many operations that we do, we would say that's a pretty low type of rate of improvement to recommend a major operation. And one can argue as to how important, how effective is this operation. And I don't know how to address this issue, and I'd be interested in whether Dr. Vermeulen has any thoughts about it, because even in the patients who don't improve using the GMFM 66 score according to measuring according to this reference percentile curves, most of the parents will say, the operation helped my child. And it may be that we need to be looking at different outcome measures to do with quality of life and so on, rather than just focusing on the motor impact of this rhizotomy procedure. So that's one of the things that I would like to have a commentary about by the office. And before I hand over to hear what Dr. Vermeulen has to say, 
I want to stress one other point for people reading this article. If you look at the selection criteria that were used in Amsterdam, they have very rigid criteria for who will have an operation, a rhizotomy operation done. And not all centers have such rigid criteria. And if you don't have the same criteria, you might expect different results. So these results that they have achieved, which I think are very good results, frankly, are perhaps better than might be achieved in many other centers where they're less restrictive in whom they will operate on with a rhizotomy procedure. So I will stop at that t at this time and again compliment the group in Amsterdam for having taken a very innovative approach to reporting the results after this operation. First of all, the effect on the outcome measurements. I think that we have chosen, of course, the emulation, so the motor function, and of course the DMFM is, is one of the, the measures you could use. However, I, I completely agree with Professor Steinbock that we should use other things because one of the things that children show is that, they, that it's easier for them, for instance, to dress themselves, to get their trousers on, and those are things that look, yes, as, as little small things, but for these children it might make a lot of difference. The other thing is to put on orthosis. The wearing of the orthosis is more convenient, so they get less blisters and other complications. So I agree that there are a lot of other things that we should look at, and we have looked at some of these things, but in this study we focused on the uh, on the motor out. Indeed, if, if you are looking at other uh, categories of patients, I think uh, one should also consider quality of life, but also specified goals of the parents and the children. And I think that can help to see what such an operation, like SCR, but uh, selected or otherwise autonomy, but other procedures will do. So I agree with that. And I would also make one note about the uh, selection procedure. I think that we really are quite strict in this selection procedure and because we what we absolutely want to avoid is to have children that undergo the uh, selected dorsal rhizotomy and are not able to stand or walk after the procedure. So we have a selection and actually we have never had a complication that the patient was not able to walk after the procedure and especially the squatting procedure is, some, is, is a procedure that can be used to select these patients. And I think that Professor Steinbock is right that you should see the, our results in light of our, our strict selection criteria. Yes. Well, I think um, one of the other points of this study is that they have looked at the outcomes at 10 years postoperatively there are very few studies so far in the literature looking at the outcomes after 10 years in any fashion. One of the techniques that is used is to look at whether patients improve on the GMFCS score after the surgery, which is another way of comparing the patient with him or herself, mm -hmm. and may be a reasonably valid alternative way to looking at the reference centiles. The interesting things that we have seen when we try to follow patients up for long periods of time is that some of these patients, especially in the GMFCS level three situation, who are ambulant when they're young and get around with orthoses, get around with a walker, 
when they become teenagers, certainly in North America, they have a tendency to want to move into a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Just as the children in the um, Myla field population tend to do as they become teenagers. And I think now that we have seen that in Western countries, certainly, the cities tend to be wheelchair-friendly. It's no longer a stigma to be in a wheelchair. And some of these uh, patients gradually get to the point where they just don't try to ambulate anymore. They get a rung in their wheelchair. They do it very effectively. If their upper limbs are uh, good, they use uh, manual wheelchairs. If the upper limbs are not quite as good, which is not so much for the population uh, that has been described in this study, they will use a motorized wheelchair. And they're accepted in the community quite well. They expend less energy, and they just find that they can keep up with their peers better than struggling with some kind of aid. And so if you follow some of these patients along even more than 10 years into adult life, they appear to deteriorate if you look simply at the ambulatory status. But when you go and talk to them as young adults or to their parents, they still feel, some parents have told me, that this rhizotomy procedure was the best thing we ever did for my child. And it's remarkable to have that kind of comment mentioned spontaneously when you look at as a physician at the patient and say, oh my gosh, I'm not sure how much I've helped this child because a child who was able to ambulate at one time in their life is now sitting in a wheelchair. And I'd be interested in hearing uh, whether Professor Vermeulen has had similar situations as they follow their children along beyond 10 years, but into young adulthood if they have that experience so far. Yes, we have indeed uh, the the same experience, especially in the group uh, GMFCS level 3. And I think our results are also in favor to consider this procedure also in the the GMFCS 1 level. And I think also in the Netherlands we have a lot of doctors that are afraid of asking consultation for these patients and asking for a selective dorsal rhizotomy. And I think our results show that we don't have to worry about this. And the other thing is that if you look at studies who looked at the uh, ambulation of uh, cerebral palsy patients in the elderly, that most of these patients indeed also lose their uh, capacity to walk. So I think it is something that you will see in, in a lot of people. And uh, and the other thing is that the, the energy that the energy expender of these patients using uh, wheelchair is, of course, much more uh, efficient. And we we have the same experience. This is why I said before that we somehow need to have other things that we can look at to assess the value of this surgery that we do. Because if you just look at the motor situation in someone who's gone from being ambulatory to being in a wheelchair, you may come away saying, well, I think this operation was a failure. The Mm -hmm. patient is ambulating worse now than they were before. And yet the patient himself or herself or the family feel that the operation was a success. And they're clearly looking at things that we're not measuring to determine in their own uh, opinion that the operation has been successful. Now, I know there is bias, and I know everybody has a big operation and the parents want to feel they did the right thing for their child, but it's so dramatic sometimes that the uh, 
parents comment so favorably about the procedure when you look simply at the motor outcome and said, oh, I'm not so happy that I've helped this child in the long term. Yeah, I also agree with the bias. That is always a difficult uh, issue in, uh, in in these patients. What we consider is, uh, what is our experience, is that we found out that patients, and, and especially the parents, are unsatisfied when we did not report the additional operations that were needed after the selected torsal rhizotomy. And I think that is an important lesson that we learned from also from the, our experience and also from this study, that we have to confront the children and parents that additional operations are needed after such a procedure. You will not cure the disease and won't need any other operations and also not need, for instance, botulinotoxin or a foot operation. We we certainly have our patients uh, seen as part of the team. We include an, a pediatric orthopedic specialist who deals with cerebral palsy patients primarily, and so that they're already involved with the orthopedic side of things as part of the team assessing the child. We find that quite helpful, and we always let the parents know that additional procedures might be necessary, and in fact, we make it somewhat positive by saying that, you know, if your child improves and starts to walk better, then we may want to see if we can even improve the child further by doing additional orthopedic type of surgeries, which might not be appropriate if the child didn't have the rhizotomy in the first instance because the child might not be as good as they are from the ovulation perspective. And so the parents already know that additional things might end up being required just because the child is ambulating more than they were before. If I may, I'd like to ask Professor Vermeulen about these GMFMCS1 patients. We have been somewhat reluctant to do a rhizotomy procedure on these patients just because we have felt that their condition is so mild that to go through a very, what is still a big operation, even though it has small risk attached to it, cutting lots of nerves, even if the patient is going to improve, we're not sure that the severity of the operation is justified. So um, we have taken a different approach, and I know some other centers do GMFMCS1 patients also, as you do, and I, I just worry about doing such a big surgery on a child who is relatively functional. I'd be interested in your comments. Of course, we are all, always in doubt to operate uh, these children, but in our team we see these children uh, for the uh, complete analysis, and what usually happens is that we first start with uh, orthosis and then with multilevel botulinum toxin. We, we, have to do, uh, we have to do that repeatedly. Then after a certain moment, and we do it on a general anesthesia, the botulinum toxin, then there is, is usually a moment where you can discuss whether we should proceed with doing botulinum toxin procedures or that we should proceed into a selective dorsal rhizotomy, which is a more or less definitive approach. And of course, there are some parents that are in doubt and they don't choose to go in that direction and choose for additional botulinum toxin uh, procedures. But there are some, and, and, and I think that our results show that we have pretty good results in this group. 
and that they are also uh, the, actually they, they improved most of all our patients. So w- we use that as an additional argument to uh, to tell to to the parents that we we are quite convinced uh, for the result, especially for these uh, these really good patients. I'm going to ask, do you think there's ever going to be a possibility of a proper sort of randomized controlled trial of any kind? No, I don't think so. I uh, commented on that there was a recent paper by Crilly, uh, it was a letter in the British Medical Journal, and he stated that the politicians should allow only a randomized controlled trial to find out the effect of this procedure, and we commented that it that it is not possible for for this procedure, especially because you want to measure these effects on the long run, and we don't think that it is it is feasible for this kind of studies. And, and we discussed it in our group and also with the group in Canada that we think that for this kind of procedures with such long-term outcome that you are not able to perform this in a randomized controlled fashion. I strongly disagree with this uh, opinion. So I I agree that I don't think that we are going to be able to do any randomized controlled study looking at the outcomes which need to be measured for 10, 15, 20 years. But what I think might be an alternative is to try to get the groups who are doing rhizotomies on a regular basis together and see if we can create protocols that could be used by all groups in the same fashion. So the selection criteria is similar, the type of prospective follow-up is similar, and whether you create a formal registry, or call, call it a spasticity registry or rhizotomy registry or whatever, just to increase the numbers of patients that we can follow in a standardized fashion prospectively. I think that's much cheaper and more achievable than a randomized trial, which would be extremely difficult to do. And I think the registry would have to be multi-centered, and it could be done across different countries. And I think this is being done certainly in pediatric neurosurgery, in the area of hydrocephalus management, syringomyelia management. We have so few patients that are having procedures done that no one center can create enough to do a good scientific prospective study that really has uh, high confidence at the end that the results are going to be uh, valid. So maybe we should get together. <laughs> Actually, we have a consortium to, together with our uh, Swiss colleagues and also from South Africa because one of our collaborators is from a Dutch origin, and we, we looked at all the... Uh, the selection criteria in our studies used, and we hope to put this together. And, and one of our goals is indeed to, to get this thing done and get these people together. So I think it is a good plan. I'm looking forward to uh, to organize this. Well, I think it should be organized over many as many centers as you can get involved. I think it would be a good idea. And it still costs quite a bit to do, but it's uh, more feasible than randomized trials. I completely agree with that. I have one question to Professor Steinbock, and it's about the rhizotomy procedure itself. 
and as a, uh, since I'm not a neurosurgeon, so I think that your opinion is, is really important. But the fact the, the procedure is done by we use a, a selective procedure where we stimulate the rootlets and select those rootlets that give most uh, motor response. And there are some groups that, and, and I think your group is also not using this kind of type of selection anymore. So my question, do you think that you should use this kind of, of, of selective procedure, which costs a lot of one or two hours additional operation time? What do you think about that? So I I don't think that the electrophysiological guidance in the operating room adds significantly to the outcome of the procedure. Having said that, we do stimulate the nerve roots intraoperatively, and we do tend to select for cutting those nerve roots that have the most abnormal type of responses. But we've shown before that the outcomes are the same whether you do it or you don't do it. But the way that we do it, it only adds about 15 minutes to our whole procedure. We don't add one or two hours. So it's done very quickly. And if we don't get good responses and we're not sure, we don't worry about it because we don't think it's that critical. Mm -hmm. We used to do uh, operations through multi-level laminoplastic procedures at the root exit zones. And we've switched over the last few years to the operation that's more popularized by Dr. Park in uh, St. Louis, which is uh, at the level of the conus, just because we think it's easier for the child and it's a smaller cut on the back and less bone removed, and maybe we hope in the long term less deformity of the spine. But the principle is the same. We select out the dorsal roots. We decide beforehand, based on a clinical picture, about what percentage of which roots we would like to cut. And that's our plan. And just during the operation, we're just saying, well, we've decided we're going to cut about 50% of the L3 root. Here's the L3 root bundle. Let's split it into three or four parts and stimulate those. Let's select out of the 50% that seems to be the most abnormal of the roots that we, or the rootlets that we've just stimulated. And if they're all very similar, we just cut 50%. Yeah. And uh, if the equipment fails during the operation for some reason, we go ahead and do our clinical plan. We don't worry very much about it, and we certainly don't take anywhere close to one hour even with the electrophysiological examination. And the reason that we did the study before, and I think it's more important, is that there are many centers around this world where there are large populations of children who would benefit by rhizotomy in whom rhizotomy is not done or was not being done because they didn't have the electrophysiological support. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you need electrophysiological support, especially in those countries such as India, where I've helped them try to operate on some children there without electrophysiological guidance. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Thank you very much indeed to both Professor Vermoulin and Professor Steinbock for a really helpful and informative discussion. As a non-specialist, I'm aware that selective dorsal rhizotomy is a highly specialized treatment. There has been some controversy about it in the past, but it is becoming more and more mainstream. So it's very helpful to hear two experts discussing where we are and where we're going to go next. And also, hopefully, helping a few more children perhaps benefit from this procedure. 
Just to remind our listeners that the article is Long-Term Effect of Selective Dorsal Rhizotomy on Gross Motor Function in Ambulant Children with Spastic Bilateral Cerebral Palsy Compared with Reference Centiles. It's by Bolster et al. in the July 2013 issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.